The Athletic. It's Straight Out of Cobham, a show about Chelsea FC from The Athletic. Coming up, you spend two years trying to perfect the pronunciation of an Albanian striker. We'll dip into the mailbag, look ahead to the women's game against Manchester United, round up the rest of the Chelsea news and do a quiz. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic. This is Straight Out of Cobham. Straight out of the freezer might be more appropriate for today's show. It is chilly here in the UK, but that's not going to stop us talking about Chelsea. It's me, Matt, and I'm joined by two of the Athletics' very finest. Hello, Dominic Fifield. Good morning, Matthew. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, Liam Toomey, you okay? Yeah, I'm good. Nothing chills the heart quite like the words pure profit. (laughs) I've actually put a note in the dock saying Liam's chance to say pure profit at the top of the show and and you've gone ahead and done it even before then um so well done deliver. to the brand yeah always I mean now that Havertz has gone you've got to have a gimmick right and pure profit would appear to be it but why are we talking about pure profit well the news broken by the Athletics David Ornstein on Wednesday that Chelsea are prepared to listen to offers for Armando Breuer this month. £50 million, apparently. We'll get you his signature. He scored twice in 17 games this season as he makes his way back from that, what, nearly year out injured. Fulham, Wolves, West Ham, others interested too. Uh, why has this been made public, Liam, now, do you think, other than the obvious reason that the transfer window is open? Because this feels like a fairly new one. When you have a story like this, that a club is open to offers for a player, it generally means they're hoping to sell that player. And as soon as I saw this, obviously top reporting as ever from my colleague David Ornstein, my antenna went up and I tried to read between the lines of what was being said. And to me, why Chelsea might be motivated to sell now There can only be two reasons, I think, and maybe it's a combination of the two. One goes back to something I wrote about a week ago, which is that Chelsea are facing a challenge with PSR for next year, not this year, and banking a bit more. Yes, pure profit uh, from selling a Cobham graduate may buy a bit more wiggle room. They wouldn't necessarily have to sell Breuer in this window to do that, but it would have to be before June 30th. So perhaps that's part of it. And the other possibility, I think, is that Chelsea have now identified internally something specific that they want to do in the attacking positions, either in this window or in the summer. And they know that they can't realistically do that, either in terms of a squad makeup, because you'd have too many forwards in the squad, and also just in terms of financial compliance, they cannot do that without selling a striker and Breuer is the one that they could get the best benefit from in terms of the accounts. So that is what I'm looking at now. I I think Chelsea have identified something specific. We don't know what it is yet, but I think they've, they've identified something specific that they want to do in the attacking positions, a certain player that they want and think they can get either in this window or, or maybe more likely in the summer. And this is why this is happening. But it, it's the potential downside of this being out there is is also maybe not being talked about enough because Chelsea do need Breuer emotionally invested and engaged right now. Nicholas Jackson is away. Christopher Nkunku is not fit yet. You need a big performance at Stamford Bridge next week against Middlesbrough to avoid the embarrassment of all embarrassments in the League Cup semi-final. You need to score goals to do that. I know Breuer's been struggling for goals and confidence, but it feels like this being out there runs the risk of making the situation worse with him when you're not guaranteed to get the kind of market you want for him in in January. It's interesting, Don, because the report says that Chelsea wouldn't be looking to replace him this month if he did leave. I also think that, as uh, included in, in David Ornstein's piece, the quotes from Maurizio Pochettino after the, the goal Breuer scored against Preston 
bear repeating. I need to be honest, he needs to use this type of game to score and feel the net and to improve. Improve not only in his fitness, but his body language also. He needs to step up and to go forward and to move. He needs to be more positive. Is there an element perhaps maybe that Pochettino's made his judgment on the player and decided that if somebody is going to be let go, it's him? I'm, I'm kind of reaching here and thinking, well, if it's selling one of Gallagher or Breuer, maybe Breuer's the better option for Pochettino and, and possibly as far as supporters are concerned too. Well, there are a couple of things on that, aren't there? I mean, it's all very well saying, um, yeah, we'll let him go. But if you put a £50 million price tag on him, then quite frankly, you're not going to sell in this window. So I don't really understand the logic, you know, of getting it out there, if that's genuinely what you're going to be charging in a, in a window where no one seems to have any money whatsoever. I would also say that Pochettino is really echoing, I mean, not in the same way, but he's echoing the sentiments that he expressed about Gallagher as well. And the reality of the situation is Gallagher, Broya, Martin obviously gone off to Dortmund now, but potentially a fee in the summer. All these guys are available for transfer. It's just a statement of the obvious this, and that's not disrespecting David's story in any way. The reality is Chelsea's youth team graduates are there for sale. They're easy money as far as the, the hierarchy of concern as, as Liam makes out. I don't think Pochettino would have come out and said that stuff about Broya after the the Preston game and then like six days later decided actually no we will sell him. I just think he's looking at it very pragmatically. I want these guys to succeed for as long as they're with us for I want Gallagher to do really well, that he's been integral to my team. I appreciate the situation that that he may go if a, an offer comes in for him because of the whole PSR stroke financial fair play situation. Exactly the same applies with Broyer. While he's here, I want him to do as well as he possibly can. I want him to develop. I want him to seize his chance and, and show how good he is. Hence, he needs to raise his body language and fulfil his potential the irony being that if, if Breyer had scored two or three goals in this little run of games, maybe they would have been a suitor in for him at something approaching the price that Chelsea apparently want for him. But but this is this is the madness of the situation we're in now. And you can you can say that's born of the Premier League's PSR. You can say it's born of the remarkable levels I almost said ridiculous but I'll stick with remarkable levels of spending that, that the ownership have sanctioned at Chelsea and the fact that they need to claw some of this money back some way and those youth team players are the opportunity to do that I don't agree with it I've said this before on the podcast but but that is the reality of the situation all right. Well, I, for one, have heard enough of the acronym PSR this week. So uh, let's move on. We'll see what happens with Armando Breuer over the coming weeks, whether he stays or whether he goes. Next today, though, we're going to dip into the mailbag. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, we asked for questions and you responded, so now it's up to Liam and Dom to provide some answers. Uh, let's kick off with Samak asking the question. We all want to know the answer to. I'll put this one to you, Liam. Can we say that there is progression on last season, even though it's underwhelming, but still better football, better position in the table, more injuries. Morale feels a little bit more stable than last season. On a similar note, Tom adds, can you guys say you've enjoyed this season? What do you think? Uh, on the first question, yes, there is tangible progress, not just in, in terms of the league position, but for most of the year, the performances have been, I think, vastly better. It hasn't been reflected in the score lines a lot of the time because some of the same problems that affected Chelsea last year remain. But if you look at having a consistent idea of how to play, creating chances relatively reliably and not giving up that many chances although they're still getting punished for the chances they do give up. I think in all of those aspects, Chelsea have been better. They look more cohesive. 
I think that there's very little argument that the progress would have been far more substantial if certain key players had been more available in the first half of this season. I'm talking Reese James, Ben Chilwell, Christopher and Kunku. Those are, I think, the three main ones that in terms of replaceability have just been really, really missed. So I do think the process has been slower and more frustrating than it otherwise could have been. This has certainly not been the best case scenario for for what this season could have been, what it looked like it could have been in mis- in pre-season. But it has been progress. And I do, I am relatively optimistic that the second half of Chelsea's season will be better than the first half, just because I, I find it very difficult to believe, and we'll probably come on to talk about this, that the injuries can continue to be this debilitating across the squad. In terms of the enjoyment factor, I don't think I've enjoyed any season less than last year. <laughs> and hopefully never will, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, even 2015-16, which was my first, I actually covered the second half of that season was the start of my time, full-time covering Chelsea. And that was like a purgatorial existence under Gus Hiddink. Even that had more in it than the final couple of months of Potter and then the the just utterly miserable Lampard interregnum, like with the with the April twenty twenty three Nadir of one goal in seven games. I don't I don't think I've ever covered a more miserable spell of Chelsea football than that. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, let's never go back there again. Here's one for you, Dom. Sam says, "Are we actually in the correct place in the table for the quality of player we have? Barring a few standouts, is the general quality in Chelsea squad that much different to the other teams?" around them in the lower top half of the table. You look at it now and and Chelsea, what? Three points behind, sixth place West Ham. They're above Newcastle. They're above Wolves. Are they about where they ought to be at this stage, given the squad? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the squad's development, probably just because of the age of the squad and and the relative experience of it. I know that's warped slightly by Thiago Silva's presence, but... Chelsea have got a lot of players with a lot of potential, a very young setup generally. And if you look at the, the teams immediately above them, maybe not Brighton, who I think are slightly the exception, but Manchester United have probably got, I don't think, look at Manchester United squad and think that they're, they're particularly better than Chelsea's, but they've probably got a few more worldly wise players in there. Um, the same probably it counts for, for West Ham as well. And, and, and even going further up to, to Tottenham and Arsenal. So they probably, I think in a few years' time, if Chelsea develop this squad then and, and, and these players and they gain experience and they sort of become used to playing properly in the in the Pochettino style, then I'm sure we'll see them kick on and, and, and compete in that in that top level. Because they've there is clearly a level of quality there. It's just a quality that, that's still being refined. So they probably are roughly where they they should be in the table. It's just as as expensive as it's been to to do. It is still transitioning. It is still developing. It is still it's still a work in progress, and and all those things that supporters hate to hear. But that is the reality of it all. Um, so ninth place at the moment probably is right. Yeah. Yeah, and with a bit of upward mobility possible, you'd say, maybe up to six would be a realistic finish for Chelsea this season, given what we've seen in the first half of the campaign. Uh, Here's one from Chris Liam. Say hypothetically, one day Chelsea had a fully fit squad, brackets unbelievable, I know, close brackets. Who's your starting eleven? I mean, first of all, you've got a tough decision to make in goal, right, if everybody's fit? Perhaps. I do think Georgia Petrovic has, has done well and at least put the question in Mauricio Pochettino's mind. Um, it must also be said that Chelsea have had a relatively favourable run of opponents uh, in this stretch as well, which I think has limited his workload slightly. We may be writing about the Petrovic-Robert Sanchez situation this week, uh, so stay tuned for that on The Athletic. I would go for Sanchez. It depends what you're looking for, but I think he's he's a bit more of an expansive passer, sometimes a heart-in-mouth passer out of the back, but his better passing range than Petrovic, I think, has a lot of added value when it comes to building out from the back. So I'd go for him in goal. Do you want me to do my whole team? 
Yeah, I'm going to say three of you defenders fully fit are James Chilwell and Thiago. So I'll, I'll save you some time there and you can pick your other centre half. Oh, two out of three. Oh, OK. All right. It's the end for the veteran, is it? I would go for Chilwell and James as the fullbacks, but my centre-back pairing would be Levi Colwell and Wesley Fofana. I know this team is feeling more hypothetical by the moment, <laughs> but I, I think that partnership would allow... Yes, I'm trying to retire Thiago Silva again. Clearly, the disrespect <laughs> for an incredible legend is just scandalous. No, what, the reason why I've gone for that is because I think it would much more easily allow Chelsea to play and defend higher up the pitch with less worry about balls just being played behind them. Because we've already seen that, I think, a few times when Chelsea have had Thiago in the team. Teams have just looked for that ball over the top a lot. And the defender who's partnering him has to shoulder a lot of that workload because he can't recover anymore. Isabel's going to be after you. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my back four. Midfield, I would go for the midfield we've seen a lot this season, which is Caicedo, Enzo, Gallagher. I think that unit is really strong. It complements each other really well. I don't really know what to make of Romeo Lavia yet because we just haven't seen him. And I didn't even really see him that much at Southampton, apart from when they beat Chelsea. <laughs> so I need to see more of him as a footballer before I could really consider him for selection here. And... The front three, I think this is where you've maybe got some of the most difficult decisions because a lot of the options are around the same kind of quality but offer different things and the combinations offer different things. But overall, I'd go for a front three of Nkunku off the left, Cole Palmer off the right and Nicholas Jackson up front. We haven't really seen Nkunku and, and Palmer in the same team at all yet. And I think that is a huge thing to see because they're the two most intelligent attackers that Chelsea have in terms of moving into good positions to receive the ball and, and making things happen between the lines. And I think in that sort of alignment, you depend on James and Chilwell for the attacking width. It'd almost be a Christmas tree, Matt, mm -hmm. uh, with Nkunku and, and Palmer behind a striker. And then you'd have the midfield providing a bit more defensive cover. The lack of goals in that midfield, I think, matters a bit less with that front three. You're in 96 flashbacks there. I haven't heard the Christmas tree formation used for an awful long time. Nice to hear it again. Uh, here's one from Mark who says, have we had so many injuries over the last two years and continue to do so, yet perennial injury specialist Pulisic, Loftus-Cheek, Kante playing regularly into a consistently high level. Um, Dom, is it too easy of me to suggest that maybe Serie A and the Saudi Pro League are not as rigorous in terms of the physicality as the Premier League and that's what's helped those three players specifically stay fit this season? I think that would be a fair assessment. Well, just Simon did a piece in the week looking at all the, the players that had departed Chelsea. Pulisic was in there. I think he's played over 1,800 minutes for for Milan this season, Loftus-Cheek, 1,400, which is pretty good going for those two. But yeah, the, the pace and physicality required in in Syria is probably a bit lower than the sort of hurly-burly of the, of the Premier League. And I think you go to a completely different level again when you when you talk about N'Golo Kante and, and the games that he's played. I mean, he's actually played even more than those two, 1,970 minutes in in Saudi, um, Saudi Arabia, uh, 32. Uh, but whether he would have got anywhere close to that if if he'd had to face up to the rigours of the, of the Premier League and the quality of opponent that he would have been up against is is a completely different question. So I suspect that's, that is the bottom line on that. And we probably shouldn't read too much into Chelsea's injury situation. <sighs> comparing their progress elsewhere with Chelsea's injury situation, rather. Um, yeah, it's been frustrating with what's happened this year and there are other reasons, presumably, for that. But again, it probably comes down to intensity and the intensity of training and and the demands that Pochettino places on his, on his team and some freakish injuries that have been picked up, not least impact injuries in games and training. Mm. 
Here's one for you, Liam. Steve says, will our owners ever try to connect with match-going fans again or are we just a backdrop to their media adverts? Feel free to rephrase if you want to. First game in 1965, season ticket holder, Steve too. I did tidy up slightly, but not too much, Steve. This is becoming a more pressing issue for Chelsea supporters, right, Liam? The, The lack of connection that they feel with the ownership. Do we have any word internally as to whether that's something that that they plan to address or that's even come across their radar? Well, the the notion of owners building a connection with the fans is quite a funny one in some ways, isn't it? Because Abramovich was never there at Chelsea, particularly for most of the latter half of his tenure. But his presence was always felt weirdly. And I think that the fans, I don't know, Abramovich almost seemed to cultivate an image of being engaged in everything that was going on at the club without ever actually being there or saying anything, which was quite an unusual thing to do. And I don't think a lot of other Premier League club owners have managed to do that. What we can say about the new owners is that they are at Stamford Bridge a lot, that at least one of them is at almost every game. They are definitely engaged in in how the club does. But I I think part of the reason maybe that they're not engaging with the fans more is would you want to put yourself in a position to be booed or abused while things are going so badly? I think if things are going better on the pitch, maybe we'll see a little bit more of them being visible and accessible is probably the best word. As accessible as billionaires ever can be <laughs> to you and me. But there, I think there is always going to be an, an element of disconnect just because that's the nature of modern Premier League club ownership and the type of people that own these clubs. The decisions that they make over things like ticket pricing, commercial agreements, the commodification of, of Premier League football at almost every level. There's always going to be a tension there with match-going fans. Uh, that's just the, the nature of the beast. But I, th- I think the reason why it feels particularly jarring for Chelsea fans right now I think is because the owners haven't presided over any success yet and there isn't given their track records that there's no reason to trust that they will get this right it's perfectly possible that they will but they've never done this before so I think it's an unsettling time for a lot of fans not knowing whether this is going to go in a positive direction or not and it means in the short to medium term I don't see that that frustration with the owners abating or the the broader sense of disconnect with the club and the direction it's taking. I guess also, Dom, there's a readjustment for, for Chelsea supporters to make in terms of, for Roman Abramovich, the club was kind of a plaything that maybe offered him a, a little bit of insulation in Britain until it really didn't. Whereas for Bowley Clear Lake, they're business people looking to make money off an asset that they own. Yeah, and that... No one likes change. Um, supporters, least of all, in this situation anyway. So, yeah, the, the readjustments there. I mean, I was thinking, I was listening to Liam there and, and describing the disconnect between the ownership and and uh, the sort of established match-going supporters. And I don't know, I mean, I, I can sort of empathise. I have a lot of sympathy with with Chelsea fans who feel like that. Even if I can look at it and think, well, actually, you you had it pretty good under Abramovich, and and, and it's, you're just sort of being brought back towards how most of us exist now. I mean, I support a football club that is at the moment struggling with its with its ownership. It doesn't doesn't really know where that ownership is taking the club or what, what its ambitions are. Matt, you might say the same about a an owner who has made wild and erratic decisions and has, you know, ultimately potentially led to a a possible point deduction here. So up and down the Premier League, you'll find supporters who who struggle to work out that relationship or to to compute and and to accept really the relationship that that they enjoy with the the owners of their their clubs. There are very few clubs and it's not just the successful ones. I mean, I suppose Manchester City supporters will love what's their ownership at the moment, but there are not many clubs out there that, that are completely at ease with with who owns their football club and what they what they plan with to do with it and how they go about their everyday thing and and, and 
inevitably matchday supporters who do pay the higher ticket prices, who who do endure those Wednesday night trips to Goodison Park in the FA Cup third round replays where you lose one nil without having a shot on target. And it's 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 those guys who suffer. It's great when you're winning and it and it was great for a long period under Abramovich, but uh, this is a period of readjustment and it can be painful. Yeah, I'm just looking at the Premier League table and, and I reckon in terms of supporters who've either got no beef, no moral issue or no concerns about their ownership, <laughs> you're looking at Brentford and Brighton, probably Luton as well. And I think that's about it. So yeah, it's not uniquely a Chelsea thing by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Liam, one thing that is uniquely a Chelsea thing and that lots of people have got in contact with us about it's having two sporting directors and uh, specifically if there is any pressure on Messrs. Wynne Stanley and Stewart at the moment. Uh, Scozzi, amongst a few people asking, saying they spent a tremendous amount of money and surely Clear Lake and Todd have questions on their squad building abilities. It's an odd thing to have two of them in post anyway. Is there any word that they are being assessed, scrutinised more than they otherwise be, given uh, this sort of scattergun and... and somewhat successful, somewhat unsuccessful transfer strategy of the last year? Not that we're hearing. And I think you have to bear in mind here that Bedadeg Bali and Todd Bowley didn't just appoint Paul Winstanley and Lawrence Stewart and just say, right, you go off and build the squad and we'll just sign the checks, essentially. The owners have been actively engaged in how this squad has been assembled. It doesn't mean they've been picking the players necessarily, but it has everything has been a conversation. It's not just been Win Stanley and Stewart making unilateral decisions on which players to buy and certainly not how much to pay for them. Because we've seen that Chelsea's approach to player valuations has fluctuated pretty wildly in the last two windows. I mean, they were convinced that Moises Caicedo was an £80 million player until suddenly he was a £115 million player <laughs> within the space of about 24 hours. So the owners have had a big role to play in the construction of this squad and certainly the cost of the construction of that squad. And I think they're, they're, there's definitely an awareness of that. And then you've also got to look at the demographic of the squad. You can't build a a group of 20-odd players under the age of 23 and then judge the two sporting directors in less than a year on whether there's instant success. You know, if you've if you've built a squad with a view to a three- to five-year development plan, it makes sense that that's the kind of timescale that you would judge the people who are leading that process on. We won't know whether this big grand Chelsea investment project has succeeded or failed for a long time. Yeah, all we know right now is that it's extremely painful in the early stages, but we are in the early stages. So while I think it's understandable that fans will be asking questions of, of Win Stanley and Stewart because of the broader questions that many people have about some of Chelsea's recruitment decisions, it's worth recognising that they're not the only people making those decisions or feeding into those decisions. The owners are heavily engaged, even if Todd Bowley is no longer interim sporting director. And that, you know, evaluating how they perform will be something that that, that takes a lot longer, I think, to to make a solid judgment on. All right, let's rattle through a couple more uh, before we wrap this up. Dom, how about this from CFC Nate? Mourinho round three at the start of next season. JT in the dugout as assistant. What's the likelihood of this happening? Do you think the club has had any internal discussions about this? Not to um, cully your answer, but Jose Mourinho has just been sacked with Roma in ninth in Serie A. Uh, we've been talking a lot about long-term visions. I would uh, suggest that perhaps Jose is not the man to oversee such a project. What do you think? I would be flabbergasted if this had come into the uh, into their thinking at all. I mean, yeah, I'm all for nostalgia, and uh, I suspect over time we will look back even more fondly on on Mourinho's stints as Chelsea manager and what he achieved with the three title successes. But enough's enough. He's not. He's not coming back. I, I do think that. Generally speaking, Jose, I mean, Jose actually did pretty well at Roma over time, and it was a it was a decent stint there. 
and I think you look back on that with a sense of satisfaction. But I don't. I think football may have moved on a bit now, and I think Chelsea has moved on very much in a in a in a different a different direction. I understand the point about counter-attacking football that uh, CFC Nate makes that, that this squad might be better geared up for that with the pace it's got. But um, yeah, I don't. I just no, it's just not going to happen. No, 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 no. Respect. 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 Yeah, lots of respect for Jose, yeah. Judas is still number one, Dom. <laughs> yeah. And I, for one, would find it fascinating if he were to come back and try to put that, set that bar even higher, further out of reach. I also think it would be uh, remarkable to watch how he would handle the uh, injury situation at Chelsea because Jose Mourinho famously sympathetic towards players with injury problems yeah it, it wouldn't work on any level <laughs> but it would i mean we would have a lot to write about yeah uh just in case my boss at chelsea tv is listening shotgun not doing post-match if he comes back still scarred <laughs> by that uh scuba steve said where would darren barnard fit into this current chelsea outfit well i think he'd be front and center as you say scuba steve captain leader legend 2.0 uh, let's finish on this one another bit of fun dom who are the one forest palace player Chelsea could look at plus two Chelsea players those clubs could do with uh, well I'll tell you that Tom you can have either of our goalies or Divock Origi I'll, I'll drive them down to Cobham for you I think Cole Palmer might get in Morgan Gibbs White's way so I'll take a fully fit Christopher and Kunku please uh, Dom what are your answers it's a really good question this because mm. um, you know the obvious answer as 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 it's put to us there is it should be Elise to Chelsea, but actually I don't really see where he would get into the team necessarily. I mean, Palmer seems to be occupying that, that berth out on the right that Elise favours. So I actually think that, and I know this probably flies in the face Schlapp. of what Liam Schlapp. said earlier. Schlapp. about you, <laughs> or there'll be some nasty commissions coming your way. Um, I actually think if... <laughs> Dean Henderson had a has a lengthy spell of playing at Crystal Palace, and, I, and he will. He's first choice there. He's established his first choice. I think he's a very, very, very good goalkeeper. Can't kick it though, can he? You need to play out the back if you're playing for Chelsea. That's not not, not his forte, from what I saw at Forest. Well, I think he's a better kicker than he probably showed at Forest. With the greatest respect to a team that struggled against relegation last season, not wishing to piss you off ahead of the quiz. Um, but but it's I think he's better with his feet than he's given credit for, and and he he's shown that in flashes at Palace. He, there have been some dodgy moments as well as he's eased his way back into re- playing regular football. Bottom line, I mean, you could you could argue, oh God, I don't know. I mean, Ezra and Gurhi could take those. Gurhi's good, but would he get in ahead of the centre halves that Liam listed earlier? Probably not. I think that they, Chelsea are, are, are great in that and well-stocked in that regard. Eze is potentially a type of midfielder that Chelsea don't have. Yeah, possibly someone to break the lines from, from midfield. I mean, you, you, yeah, that, that's that's not a bad shout. And Eze will will be, uh, effectively, I suspect, will, there's a good chance that he leaves at the end of this season. So, you know, that, that might be the type of player that, that Chelsea could look at, West um, London boy. Tyrick Mitchell is also a fit left back, which is a, a novelty <laughs> at Stamford Bridge. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, but look, it's—I mean, this goes to show actually that there's a wealth of talent in this in this Chelsea squad. There, the depth is there. If they're all fit, going back to the the selection that Lee and then that's a really good team, and it's it's a team that doesn't even have Raheem Sterling in it. Um, so. It's not an easy thing to to pluck a player out of lower mid table and and you know improve a, a Chelsea team. It's, it's, it's not really feasible. The other way round, I mean, quite frankly, we'd take pretty much anybody at the moment. <laughs> Anyone who could supply a goal would be useful. A fit race, James would probably do pretty well at Palace. Oh. What you, you dissing Joel Ward? <laughs> or you? I mean, you want you want Conor Gallagher back, right? You want the Crystal Palace version of Conor Gallagher. That's probably the answer here. To be perfectly honest. No, Reese James is the answer. You're right. <laughs> Everybody, there's not. A, I mean, I think Reese James, fully fit, which is a he'd get into most teams in the division. I mean, a fully fit, but that's that's the problem, isn't it? 
Mm. It sure is. Right, I enjoyed that. We'll do another mailbag at some point. Thanks to everybody who sent a question in. Apologies if we didn't get to yours. We did read them all, though, and we appreciate the interaction. Next today, though, we're going to switch our focus to the women's team. So Emma Hayside played their first league game of the year when they welcomed Manchester United to Stamford Bridge on Sunday. Jesse Barker Humphreys joins us to look ahead to the game. Um, Jesse, Chelsea coming into this off the back of a not particularly convincing performance against West Ham in the Cup. I guess the big thing to take from that was that mere official goal because A, it was an excellent goal. B, only her second since she joined, but she's going to be stepping up, right, in Sam Kerr's absence. We, we spoke about this last time you were on and, and that was a good start for her in terms of doing that. Yeah, well, we sort of assumed she'd be stepping up, but obviously she didn't start that West Ham game. Lauren James started as, as the number nine and I think it was clear that that experiment wasn't the right one and Chelsea looked much, much better when Fischl came on and, as you say, got the goal, took the goal very well, really important goal. Um, in terms of getting Chelsea back into that game and sending the game to extra time. It was interesting after the match, though, in the, the post-match, Emma Hayes sort of said, you know, Mia Fischel needs minutes. Uh, it, it Almost in this sense of, like, she didn't feel she was ready to sort of step into this role. And it will be an intriguing decision, I think, for Hayes to make on Sunday about whether Fischel does get the nod in, in the game against Manchester United. I think right now it feels like the best option, but clearly... Hayes herself seems to have some question marks over Fischl's readiness to do this, um, which then also sort of raises question marks of, you know, why did sort of Chelsea sign her to be their backup striker in the first place? Mm, I guess she was a big fish in a small pond <laughs> hey. uh, before she asked. Oh, sorry, just <laughs> dreadful. Uh, do we know when Kat Macario is likely to be available? Because obviously she's going to be another option, but even when she is fit, it's going to take her a long time to get up to speed, presumably. Yeah, I mean, Chelsea have sort of said it's soon. She certainly seems to be back in full team training and looks like she has been, you know, for a while, like she was on that camp in Morocco um, with everyone else. But this is someone who's been out with an ACL injury for 18 months at this point, which even for ACL injuries is, you know, pretty exceptional amount of time out. I don't know how much that has been because Chelsea have wanted to take their time with her. There's sort of shades of obviously when Lauren James came to the club and had, you know, rather than one serious long-term injury, but a lot of back-to-back injuries that Chelsea basically said, look, like sit on the sidelines and sort yourself out. Obviously the injury to Kerr kind of changes where the pressure lies in terms of being able to bring Macario into the squad. I think the benefit Chelsea have is that if they want to become more confident in Fischl, you know, Macario's opportunities can be sort of rotation ones. She played a lot as a 10 at Leon. She's kind of always said she wants to be a nine, but I expect we'll see her pick up minutes in, in both roles. Hayes, I think it's even in the past talked about seeing her potentially as an eight, seeing her further back in the midfield. So it will be, I think, a big psychological boost for her to be available, but it will be interesting to see how long it takes her to work into the side. Because I don't think Chelsea have will have any interest in rushing her because, you know, they, they see her as a very important long-term prospect. And the last thing they'll want, given she's had so many setbacks recovering from the ACL, is, is any more issues around that. Hearing you go through those possible positions there, Jesse, Kat Macario sounds like the new Kai Havertz at, <laughs> at Chelsea. An eight, a ten, a nine, maybe any of them on any given day. And a Champions League final goal scorer. So, you know, the, the wow. similarities go on and on. Future's bright. But it, with that in mind, and obviously with Sam Kerr's highly unfortunate injury, is there a possibility now, or maybe even a requirement, for Emma Hayes to, to build a different kind of attack from the ones that we've seen at Chelsea in, in recent years, given that she has such different personnel and with players like Macario, players who can play very different roles. Yeah, and I think this was kind of what I assumed was being aimed at with the decision to play Lauren James in the nine at West Ham was was that exact kind of recognition of maybe actually the players Chelsea needed to involve was going to have to be spread in a different way. And as a result, was looking to someone who was sort of going to drop and create that space for other people to make runs. What was weird in the West Ham game, and I guess what Chelsea have to figure out, is how quickly can you change that all around? And and the Hayes element of it is particularly fascinating because if Hayes wasn't leaving, you'd say, well, she's looking at this as 
a year's project effectively in terms of how this attack works because that's how long her's going to be out for it's not really for her anymore it's it's a five month project and it's a win now project because she's gone when it, we get to the end of may and i i don't know how much that changes what she's thinking about doing the thing that i found strange about the choice of James in particular is that I think there are other players who are better suited to do that kind of thing. I assume when the team sheet came out that Kirby would do it because she's played that role before. She's more familiar with the players around her. I think she's a more well-rounded player currently than, than Lauren James is. So I don't know if that's something that Hayes will potentially revisit, but it will be interesting. They obviously have these two sort of distinct options in just being able to play a traditional nine like Fischl if that's what they want to do. But yeah, as I say, I think the concern will be is that in the West Ham match, it was a lot of get the ball out wide and put crosses into the box, which spoke to me as being like, we are not looking to attack in a different way. You're assuming Sam Kerr's going to be there. And if Sam Kerr's not there, you need to put someone else there. Uh, let's throw it ahead to Sunday's game then, because it feels like a, a big one for both teams. Chelsea three points clear of City and Arsenal with 10 games of the season played. Those two will, will smell blood given Kerr's absence and, and Emma's impending exit. But Manchester United, Mark Skinner's under a bit of pressure, right? Not not bad results before the winter break, but a home defeat against Liverpool. They were beaten by Man City in the derby as well. So th this is a key fixture for them as they, they try and put some pressure on the Champions League places. Yeah, and Skinner's not been a popular figure at Manchester United, I think, for a while. There was this sort of strange story that came out in the winter break that fans had been asked to stop chanting Skinner out at their like pre-season or pre-second half of the season camp. So I think it is a very important game for him and, and a tough one for them to come into because they've never beaten Chelsea before. Um, so I think it will be really interesting because on the one hand, I think you've got a Chelsea team who understandably are maybe lacking a bit of confidence given that they're missing her and not only missing her, missing Millie Bright, which I think is feeling like a bigger and bigger loss, the bigger the delay on her return seems to be. But also Chelsea are in a position of feeling like, you know, they've often got one over United. The strange thing about United this season is that they actually haven't really changed that much from last season. It's just last season stuff sort of went their way and this season it's not in the way kind of football can do. But it will definitely be an interesting one. I also think for Chelsea, they ended before the winter break in this kind of strange position where obviously they were totally battered by Arsenal. They looked like they'd absolutely you know, lost their lead at the top of the table and then Arsenal kind of handed them this golden ticket to be go three points clear because they then went and immediately lost to Spurs so I think that kind of leaves Chelsea in this position of it feels like they need this almost statement win given that they had the Arsenal game the draw with Hacken they look nervy against West Ham we feel a very very long way from sort of the the form they were in in October and November and I think anything that's not convincing Chelsea go on to play four games in nine days it could be a really bleak January if things don't look really good, I think, at Stamford Bridge. All right. Key part of the season coming up then. We'll keep you up to date with how it goes. Jesse, always a pleasure. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. Elsewhere in Chelsea News, the under-21s play on Monday night. That's against Colchester in the Premier League Cup at Kings Meadow. The under-18s will now be in action on Sunday. They go to Everton in the fourth round of the FA Youth Cup. That was originally slated for Thursday night, but it has been moved to Sunday, presumably because of the weather. All right, next we're going to do a quiz. Easy one this, Liam. Don't worry, it's based on the season so far. So I make you favourite to win this week. If you don't win this, Liam, then you should seriously consider your future. Can, <laughs> oh, we, wow. can we go back to the mailbag? questions <laughs> I can answer. Right. Uh, let Dom can go first. Um, Enjoy. Who scored Chelsea's first goal of the season? Um, Axel Dizazi. Certainly was against Liverpool. Well done. Uh, Liam. Here you go. Name the four players who made their Chelsea debuts when starting against Liverpool in that opening game. I'm not talking substitutes here. I'm talking the starting 11. Mm. 
Starting 11. Uh, Levi Colwell. Colwell is one, and that was kind of the trick question, so well done. Next three are easy. I don't say that. <laughs> um... Nicholas Jackson. Nicholas Jackson is another. Two to go. Robert Sanchez. Oh, he's cooking. Just one left. Oh, Dizassi. Yeah, yes. Right. <laughs> Dom and I were both pulling the same face there. Uh, one, well, what one. you witnessed there was a masterclass in overthinking. <laughs> <laughs> like Mikhailo Mudrik. Uh, one might suggest. Uh, here we go, Dom, with question two for you. Name the four teams Chelsea have beaten away from home in the Premier League this season. Well, Burnley. Yep. Uh, Fulham. Yep. Uh, Luton. Yep. Um, oh, and Spurs. Absolutely correct. Two for two. It's that stage of the quiz where Lucy's about to realise she might need to put a tiebreaker in. Uh, we'll Don't see. worry, Lucy. She's done it already. It's you. already in there. It is. I've seen it. Great. Okay. Um, right, Liam. Second question. Against whom did Enzo Fernandez score his first Chelsea goal? In the cup, wasn't it? Um, it? I think it was a lower league team that plays in red. I wasn't at the game. Uh, let me get this wrong. Um, is it Charlton? Charlton? Where does that come from? Charlton? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> don't remember. I wasn't at the game. South London's really? other team, Wimbledon. Wimbledon, yeah, well done, Dom. You get the oh, that famous, that famously red Team playing. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm trying to help you as much as I can, Liam, but you've got to help yourself sometime. Uh, so that's a no, uh, Dom. You've already got three because you pinched that one and you got your first two right. Let's see how you do on question number three. After beating which team was it announced that Emma Hayes would be leaving Chelsea at the end of the season? Oh, um. Aston Villa? Aston Villa is correct for the win. Um, As a machine. Yeah, I mean, that was really impressive. Uh, Liam, let's see if you get your, your third question just to reduce the arrears slightly. Name the three teams in Chelsea's Women's Champions League group. Jesse's just given you one. It's amazing you can actually pick up quite a lot by subbing these guys' copy that rather than actually <laughs> writing it. I never knew this. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly it absorbs in a different way. This is an embarrassing question that exposes how little attention <laughs> I've been paying uh, to the early stages of the Chelsea Women Champions League campaign. One's a very famous football club. The other two are certainly not in terms of men's football. Possibly the most famous football club in the world. Oh, good grief, Liam. <laughs> what, Barcelona? Oh, no. good God. <laughs> Real Madrid. Yes, yes, Real Madrid is one. Okay. I don't know the other two. So okay. move, Hacken and, and Paris FC. On. Yes, Hacken and Paris FC is correct. Liam, we're having words after this. <laughs> You're getting commissioned to do something on the Women's <laughs> Champions League. I feel. Uh, the tiebreaker, by the way, was add together these two percentages, Chelsea's shooting accuracy this season and their <laughs> tackle success. I mean, my goodness me. Um, the answer was 95, 36% shooting accuracy plus 59% tackle success. Uh, if you got that right, open the curtains, go outside for a walk, <laughs> and something else for a little while, frankly, because that is quite extraordinary. That was my only banker. <laughs> Fairness, you would have got that. You definitely got that. <laughs> uh, well done, Dom. You'll get there one day, Liam. We'll keep plugging away. I'll, I'll try and stick a few more Darren Barnard-related questions into into your next quiz. And, and hopefully, put me on Mondays. <laughs> That's all I ask. Uh, uh, right, we're just about done for the day. Dom, you mentioned that, that piece that Simon's got up analysing uh, how Chelsea's players 
who were sold last summer are getting on. That's quite a pleasant read for Chelsea supporters, I would suggest. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, look, it's early days for a lot of them. And we have to take that into account. A lot of them are adjusting. Some of them had injury problems, Mason Mount primarily amongst them. But but it, you don't look at that list of of players and think, oh, why why did we sell him? Because he's tearing it up at his new club. I mean, that may happen in, in the future. The, the most successful of them has arguably been Christian Pulisic, who we ran a big interview with James Horncastle earlier this week and is, is having a great time at, at Milan, uh, winning awards there and making a real impact. But again, I just don't think that Chelsea supporters look at Christian Pulisic and, as somebody that, you know, the one who got away. I just think that they accept that it didn't work out at, at Chelsea and, um, you know, good luck to him at his, at his new club. And, and it's really, there, there are a fair few like that in that list. It's a, it's, it's a long, it's a long list. He covers 12 players, um, including some of those who departed on free transfers like, like Kante and Azpilicueta, but uh, a good, interesting read, I thought. Yes, I did too. And, and lots of money shifted off the books in terms of high earners as well. Uh, Liam, what have you got in the pipeline other than boning up on the, on the WSL and Women's Champions League? I'm not sure if I'm going to be taking off all future projects now. <laughs> uh, I'll have to consult my editor after this podcast. <laughs> Simon and I are doing a, a joint piece on the two main Chelsea goalkeepers, Petrovic and Sanchez, and the decision that could be nearing for Mauricio Pochettino as Sanchez approaches full fitness again. Um, beyond that, I'm I'm looking to try and do something on Cole Palmer and how he succeeds in in this Chelsea team, which should appease the the many Chelsea subscribers who have called me negative for some of my match pieces in in recent weeks. I was determined to try and find a positive story to write about, and doesn't get much more positive than Cole Palmer right now. Absolutely not player of the season. By a mile, uh, one would suggest at the moment. Athletic.com slash Chelsea pod is the place to go to sign up to read all of Liam, Simon and everybody else's excellent work. Uh, it would be very much appreciated if you did that. If you think of making a subscription helps us out, you can help us out by leaving us a nice review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your pods as well. Follow us on Twitter slash X at SO Cobham Pod. We'll be back on Monday when we'll be looking ahead to the second leg of the League Cup semi-final against Middlesbrough. We'll reflect on that women's game against Manchester United and plenty more besides to join us for that if you can. Until then, thanks to Jesse for joining us earlier, to Liam, to Dom and to Lucy and to you for listening. We'll catch up with you again next week. Bye for now. The Athletic.